Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Well, today we're continuing our study through the book of Mark. We're calling it the simple gospel because Mark tells us straight up exactly who Jesus is, what Jesus does, what Jesus says, and what it means for us as the church to follow him. And in today's sermon, we're going to meet five different types of followers of Jesus. And I want you to ask yourself to seriously consider which one of these followers of Jesus am I? Because what we're going to see today is that some people love Jesus, some people hate him, some people want something from him, but what you cannot say is that you don't know who he is because Jesus is the most important, the most the most preeminent, the most controversial, that Jesus is the, the most significant person who has ever lived in the history of the world. And a lot of people talk about him, a lot of people have a lot of things to say about him, and today we're going to meet five different types of followers of Jesus. And so I really want you to ask yourself, which one of these followers am I? And the sermon title today is called Jesus and the Crowd. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 7, and we're going to work our way all the way through verse 14. It's only a couple of verses, but I would suggest to you that these are some very important verses for our church, for where we're heading as a culture, and what it means for you to follow Jesus. So you have your Bibles. We're in Mark chapter 3. But before we dive into there, I need to tell you something that's very important for our study through the gospel of Mark. Mark is a genius. The way that Mark sets up and writes this book is just brilliant. When you come to the New Testament, what you'll see is that there is four books to start off the New Testament. They're called the Gospels. And in those Gospels, we see four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Within those Gospels, there's three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called the Synoptic Gospels. Say that with me, Synoptic. You guys sound so smart. I wanted to make you feel like you went to college and you can get your money's worth. So there's a fancy word to impress your friends. Synoptic Gospels. That includes Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is not a synoptic. John, he kind of writes about his own thing. And all four Gospels tell the biography of the life and ministry of Jesus. But 90% of Jesus's ministry is similar in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the reason that it's similar yet different is because they're writing to totally different audiences. Over the last 50 years or so, there's been a lot of research and study done by scholars and theologians looking and investigating in the book of Mark, because by and large, over the course of church history, the gospel of Mark has been forgotten. But a lot of people are studying, and here's why it's so important. It's because of the audience that each of the gospel writers is addressing. One of the things that you need to know about how to interpret your Bible is you need to start with the original audience. What would they think? How would they read this? What kind of information and application would they glean from understanding this text? And Mark and and Matthew and Luke, they have different audiences. So Matthew, he primarily writes to Jewish people. That's why when you're reading Matthew, you're going to notice there's a lot of prophecy. There's a lot of Old Testament references. There's a lot of writings about how Jesus is the promised Messiah and the one who is to come. And so Matthew is primarily writing to a Jewish audience. Luke, on the other hand, he is writing primarily to Gentiles. So people who are far from God have no understanding of who God is, and Luke is like an eyewitness investigation. So he goes and he interviews people who actually saw Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection. And so think about it very much like journalism. That's Luke, because he's writing to Gentiles. But Mark, on the other hand, he's not writing to Jewish people. He's not writing to Gentiles. Instead, Mark, he is writing to the church at Rome. So his book, this book, is primarily written as an encouragement to Christians in the church. And here's why this is so important, because the church at Rome during this time, they were facing extreme persecution under the Roman government and by the hands of a man named Nero. Nero was their Caesar. He was their emperor. He was a wicked, godless, ruthless, violent of a man who determined that Christianity must be destroyed and Christians need to be wiped off the planet and that he determined to execute, to arrest, to crucify, to behead, to murder all of the Christians and totally destroy the church. 
And so the Christians, they were being arrested, they were being beheaded. Many Christians, they were being fed to lions and wild dogs and coliseums as sport. And Nero would actually use Christians as torches for his garden. He would put them on torches and pale them, set them on fire so they could bring light to the city in the night. That's what it looked like to be a Christian in the first century church. And it's in this church that Mark is writing to the Christians. He is writing to encourage the church. And it's in this that we find where Mark's letter has its place in the history of Christianity. And here's where Mark's brilliance comes in. Because as Mark is writing this, today what we're going to see is he's going to juxtapose two big ideas about following Jesus. We're going to see the difference between the crowd and the call. And we're going to meet five different followers of Jesus. And I want you to ask yourself, which one am I? Which one best represents my life? Which one fits the way that I live? Am I a part of the crowd or am I part of the call? Which follower of Jesus am I? So if you have your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 7 as we continue our study called The Simple Gospel, Jesus and the Crowd. I'm going to read it all up front, and then we're going to walk through it on the back end. Starting in verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd, there's there's the word, the great crowd, they began to follow him from Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, from Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and they told his disciples, or he told his disciples rather, to have a boat ready for him because the crowd, lest they crush them. I want to pause right here because this is really important for us to understand and it really sets up the rest of the sermon. See, a lot of us, when we come and we read the Bible, we think, oh, well, this is actually a good thing. A lot of people are following Jesus. That's amazing. Look at this great crowd that is following him. This must be pretty cool. And we could read this and on the surface, we think it's like Bieber fever, that there's just this huge crowd that's following Jesus, or maybe it's like Beatlemania, and we read it and we think, man, that's a, that's a really good thing, but this is actually not a good thing. This is actually a bad thing. It says, lest they crush him. That wording is very important. The Greek word for crush here means to consume or to devour or to kill or to destroy or to crush. That at this point, Jesus withdraws, that he is, that he is um, he's fleeing the scene. That's why he's got the getaway boat, because he's, a, he's, he's worried, he's fearful, he's afraid that the crowd is pressing in and that they are literally going to crush him and to kill him. What Mark is doing right here is he is foreshadowing the death of Jesus. He's showing us how at the end of the book that Jesus is going to be executed at the hands of the crowd. This is a foreshadowing of Mark chapter 14, where Jesus comes into Jerusalem for the triumphal entry, and there's great crowds that are following him, and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then the very next day, that same crowd is shouting out, crucify, crucify, crucify. What Mark is showing is a foreshadowing of the death of Jesus at the hands of the crowd. So it's not a good thing. It's actually a, it's actually a bad thing. Jesus is fleeing for he is afraid that they are going to crush him. Well, the story continues. Why is this great crowd following him and why is he fleeing from them? It says here, for he had healed many. So all that who had diseases pressed in around to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out. Unclean spirit, that means demon. The unclean spirits fell down and they cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up to the mountain and he called to those whom he desired. So we see a crowd and then we see a call. Those whom he had desired and they came to him. And he appointed the twelve whom he also named the apostles so that they might be with him. In verses 7 through 12, what you'll notice is there's a great crowd that is following Jesus. That people from everywhere are flocking to, they're coming to, they want to see Jesus, they want to take a look at Him, they want to watch Him, they want to see what it is that Jesus is doing. In verses 7 through 12, we see that there's this great crowd. At this point, Jesus is the most popular, the most famous, the most infamous person in all of the region. Today, what we would say is that Jesus, he's gone viral. That Jesus, he's trending. He's number one on iTunes. You know, he's all over your Twitter feed. The CNN and Fox News, they're arguing and they're debating and they're asking, who is Jesus? Who is this man? 
Is he a teacher? Is he a healer? Is he a prophet? Has he come to, you know, issue in a new religious system? Has he come to overthrow Rome and make Jerusalem great again? Who is this man? Who is Jesus? Jesus has gone viral. Jesus is trending. He's like a celebrity. I mean, people are following him, not because they love him, but because, well, he's like TMZ or like Instagram. I mean, everybody wants to see, what is Jesus doing? What's he going to do next? Where's he going? What's he going to say? Jesus is very popular. He's famous. He's infamous. Jesus is a very big deal. And so the first thing we see is that there's this great crowd. But out of the crowd, in the last verse, 13 and 14, we'll notice that there's a small handful of people that out of the crowd, Jesus has called to be with him. And the big idea is this, that Jesus is calling you out of the crowd so that you can be with him. In the crowd, some commentators and speculators, they say that there was about 4,000 people that were gathered together on that day. 4,000 people is unprecedented even in our day, but could you imagine 4,000 people happening back then? The average town in that day was maybe 80, maybe 120 people. Very small, very rural, not a lot happening. But to have 4,000 people all crammed together coming to see Jesus, I mean, that is a very big deal. And what Mark is trying to say is, this is the way that it's always been. There has always been a crowd. This is the way that it was. This is the way that it is. This is the way that it was in Jesus' day. This is the way that it is in the church today. There's always been a crowd. And right now, it feels like you are feeling like what Jesus experienced on this day. That in the culture, in the environment, that you feel as if you are being crushed, that life is overwhelmed, that you are disheartened and you are discouraged, you're fearful and you're afraid because it feels as if at any moment, any time in your life, everything could come crashing down and it feels as if you are being crushed. But take heart for the church because you have been called out of the crowd and you have been called to be with Jesus. Jesus has called you out of that crowd. I mean, could you just imagine the peace that a first century believer would have when they come to read this section in Mark? Because for the first century Christians, the world has changed so much in 30 years. See, for Mark, he actually writes this book in AD 60. That's only 30 years removed from the writing of this story. Mark writes the Gospels first. Mark is the first book of the New Testament to be written. And Mark writes this only 30 years after the life and ministry of Jesus. That 30 years ago, there was a great crowd that was following Jesus. And now can you think about it? That same crowd is crushing them. That same crowd is now seeking to murder and to destroy them. For them, the world has changed so much in 30 years. Some of the people reading this, they might say, you know what, I remember this. I remember when I was a little boy or I was a little girl and my, my parents, they, they brought me to a hillside, this big Coliseum stadium, 4,000 people all packed together wanting to hear Jesus, wanting to see a miracle, wanting to see Jesus heal somebody. It was amazing. I was a part of that crowd. But now I'm huddled in a corner, fearful, hugging my wife, hugging my kids, Because at any moment, a Roman guard could come in, take my wife, turn her into a slave, take my little girl, and do unimaginable things to her, and at any moment, they could just murder me. It feels like I'm being crushed. I was once a part of that crowd. And now at any time, I could literally be crushed. And this is the audience that Mark is writing to This is the first century believers. And they're reading this and Mark's saying, yeah, you're on the fringes. Yes, it's you're feeling like you are marginalized, ostracized. You're being ridiculed. You're being embarrassed. Everything is pressing down and pushing all around you. It literally feels like you are being crushed. But take heart because Jesus has called you out of that crowd and he wants for you to be the church. Could you imagine the peace that they would have in this moment? 
But could you also imagine the temptation that they might face? I mean, the temptation for them to just walk away. You know what? I'm not following Jesus anymore. I mean, this stuff could get you killed. I'm not going to do that. We had a good 30-year run. I loved being a part of the crowd. It was a good party, right? You know, I don't really want to be called anymore, so I'm just going to turn my back. I'm going to walk away. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to participate in anything. Instead of following Jesus, I'm going to follow Rome. I'm going to bend my knee to Nero, right? I'm, I'm not doing this. Could you imagine the temptation for them to give up and to give in and just to, to walk away altogether? Could you imagine the temptation that they might face to want to become just like Rome. So you know what? We can integrate both faith and in, in Jesus and our faith in, in, in the government. You know, we could integrate our, our faith in the kingdom of God and also we could also submit to the empires of Rome. We could worship Jesus and we could worship Caesar. Rome, we're no different than you at all. Could you imagine the temptation that they might have to integrate their faith and to add other things to what they believe. Can you imagine the temptation that they might face not to reject Jesus, but to go underground with their faith? You know what? I don't like being made fun of. I don't want to be criticized. I don't want to be ridiculed. I don't want to be embarrassed or persecuted. And so I'm not going to deny Jesus, but here's what I'm going to do instead. I'm just not going to talk about him. I'm not going to tell my friends about Jesus. I'm not going to talk to my neighbors or coworkers about him. I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm not going to teach my kids about Jesus. I want them to make their own decision about what they want to do with their life, and it's their choice. And faith for me is a private matter. It's never a public matter. And I have a personal relationship with Jesus. No one can judge me. And so they begin to go underground when it comes to their faith. Can you imagine the temptation that they might be experiencing it? And this is the church that Mark is writing to. A church that is on the fringes. A church that is being marginalized. A church that is being persecuted. A church that doesn't know the way forward or what's coming next or what's going to happen. And it's in these words that Mark tells them, you have been called out of that crowd. And here's where this is so important for us here. Because we're not that far removed from 8060. Redemption Church, we might be 2,000 years later, but we're not that far removed from 8060. America is becoming more and more just like Rome. And this is the time in which we need to begin to identify so much more with our first century brothers and sisters because the way forward for the church is by recognizing our roots and understanding who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus has called us to be, and what it truly actually actually means for us to follow Jesus. We are not that far removed from 8060. I mean, true or false, the world has changed. True. Right, the world changed so fast for those first Christians. Well, here's the deal. The world is changing so fast for us. In the last 30 years, the world has changed. I mean, when I was young, right, you actually had to work to be able to watch pornography. Today, you have every single perversion imaginable in your pocket right now as I'm speaking. The world has changed. 30 years ago, abortion was something that you would never even talk about. Today, some people change their Facebook profiles to pink and do marching in the streets with a vagina hat celebrating death. 30 years ago, they, you know, gay marriage was something that would never even be thought of. But today, if you oppose gay marriage and support the biblical traditional values of what marriage is supposed to be, then you're seen as a bigot and homophobic and everybody hates you. The world has changed. 30 years ago, there was something called the moral majority and the religious rights. Well, that's not the case anymore because even conservative politicians have nothing to say about morality and all they talk about is your money because that's what people care about. 30 years ago, a chicken sandwich making headline news would never even be considered. And now we see that there are black men being murdered in their own homes. The world has changed. We don't live there anymore. The world has totally changed. We're not far removed from AD 60. I mean, 30 years ago, the church was the center of cultural environment. I mean, 30 years ago, the church was the center of the culture. If you wanted anything, did you had to go to the church, right? If you wanted to get a job, you needed to go to the church, 
right? Because then there's people there who will they'll, they'll help you out. If you needed you know, money to pay your bills, you go to the church, there's benevolence there. If you wanted to run for political office, you need to be a deacon at First Methodist. If you want to find a new you know, AC repairman, if you want to get a new plumber, hey, guess what? Every single truck driving down the road has a Jesus bumper sticker on the back so that way you would see them and think, oh, that's my Christian brother and sister. I'm going to hire them. They're going to hook me up. We're going to be given to the kingdom at the same time. The world doesn't work like that anymore. That's not the world that we live in, and Beaumont needs to understand this. Because 30 years ago, this is the way that it was for Beaumont. I mean, you can't throw a rock without hitting a church in our city. I mean, you might be able to throw pretty far and might hit two, but you can't throw a church without hitting a rock. Because 30 years ago, this was the center of all of culture, was, was through the religion. That the church was the crowd 30 years ago. But today... Today, it looks a little bit different. While there are 200 churches, the average church in our city is plateaued and decline, declining with about 80 people. That means in a church of 120,000 people, on any given Sunday, there's maybe 30% of the population that are actually sitting, attending a Jesus-loving, Spirit-filled, Bible-preaching church that they're worshiping, serving, and following Jesus. What happened to the rest of them? is nothing more than just another face in the crowd. This is the world that we live in. And I'm not trying to tell you this to scare you, but I do want to make you aware. If you think that this is another Take America Back sermon, then you're not listening to me. Because America never has been, never will be the chosen. America has never been the called. America is no different than Rome. It's nothing but a crowd. Our job is not to win America. Our job is to win Americans. And the way forward for our church is to identify with our first century brothers and sisters for us to recognize that we have been called out of this crowd and God has called you to follow Jesus. That's the way forward for us. And so as we get into this, I want you to seriously consider which one of these followers are you. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to go back through it one more time. And we're going to see the difference between the crowd and the called. And ask yourself, which follower best represents your life? The first group we see is this, the culture. Starting in verse 7. Jesus withdrew. Okay, that word, that word means he's retreating, that he is pulling away from, that he is fearful, that he is pulling back from the culture. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And the great crowd followed from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, from Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, from around Tyre and Sidon. So the first group we see is this, the culture. Here you'll notice is that there are people from very diverse backgrounds. Right? There are people who are literally coming from everywhere, flocking from everywhere just to come and see Jesus. And, and so here what we notice is that there's, there's actually two different groups that are a part of the culture. The first we see is that there's very religious people. So here we notice that there's Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. So for them, they're very religious. This is primarily a Jewish audience. So they grew up in Sunday school. They went to synagogue. They had you know, praying grandparents. They memorized the Torah. They prayed the Shema every single day. They're very religious. But the second group is irreligious. You'll notice that they're from Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon and Idumea. Okay, so if the first group is Jewish, the second group, they're Gentiles. That one worships the God of the Bible, the other worships the God of Rome. One is very religious, the others are irreligious. Now my question for you as you're reading this is, why would these two groups of people from totally different backgrounds all of a sudden show this interest in following Jesus? Why would people who are raised in this very religious environment all of a sudden show this interest in Jesus? Why would these people from a very irreligious with no faith background all of a sudden show this interest in Jesus? It's not because they believe in him. It's not because they love him, but actually it's because they have a false understanding of what it means to follow him. Okay, today the cultural equivalent would be a um, Facebook post that goes viral and everybody jumps in the comment section because they're all experts and they want to give their expert opinion on everything. Okay, this is exactly what's happening. And this is what we see also happening today. And I'll give you an example because I know you want one. This week, there was a viral Facebook post by Vice News. And it was an interview with a pastor out of Dallas um, named Matt Chandler over the future of the church in America and how we navigate these, socials and trend, these social trends that we're seeing. 
And, and what is the way forward for the church in America in the 21st century? And it was a great article. It was a, a great interview. You can watch it on HBO. I watched it this weekend with my wife. It was great. It was a very honest, very gracious, very generous interview by both Vice and Matt Chandler. Highly recommend it. That's not what I'm arguing about. Here's where I was very concerned. The concern for me came from reading the comment section. You read the comments, it's just like, oh my God, people are crazy. I shared it on my own personal Facebook wall, and I was like, don't read the comments, don't read the comments, don't read the comments, don't! I totally read the comments, and the comment section was crazy. You had every single person from both sectors jumping in the comments because everybody's an expert, and they're all giving their two-cent opinion on the 2,000-year-old question, who is Jesus? And the comment section, while crazy, I also think is very indicative of where our culture is heading. So here's what I did. I took screenshots of some of my favorite comments. And so I'm going to share with you some of the comments that were on this video. And, and it's just really, it's really indicative of where we're heading today. So the first comment was this. It's from a guy named Patrick. Here's what he says. The most disgusting group in America. Okay, that's you. Pathetic hypocrites. Okay, there's a group right now advocating for child pornography. But the church the most disgusting group in America. All right, P Patrick thinks you're a hypocrite for saying that. And the next is this. Next one. Um, Misha Zinn says, mental illness at its best. You can't fix stupid. Tell us what you really think. Next slide. Melissa says, somebody today called them evangelicals. I think that's appropriate. It might be appropriate, but it's not very clever. Evangelicals, like you could come up with a better insult than that, right? Come on, evangelicals. Here's what Elizabeth says. Okay, I don't care what you believe, quotes, by the way, air quotes, believe. Um, I don't care what you believe, as long as you don't force those, there it is again, air quotes, beliefs, onto other people. I mean, that's kind of patronizing, right? Oh, you believe? Sure, I bet you believe. I don't really care what you believe as long as you don't force those beliefs onto other people. I mean, that's a little patronizing. And you know, I, I don't know about you, but I just kind of feel like she's forcing her beliefs on me, right? And they're like, hey, I don't care what you believe. Just don't tell anybody what you believe. And that's what I believe. Oh, really? Huh. I kind of feel like you're a hypocrite. You should go hang out with Patrick and maybe he can learn the definition of the word. Next one, Manuel writes, hopefully more atheism and science over imaginary friends and superstition because atheism and science worked so well for Soviet Russia and communist China. I mean, didn't that just go really great? Just about 30 million people dead over the last hundred years or something like that. That was a really good one. Let's give that one another go. Okay, James. Next is, uh, is James. Here's what James writes, and I love this. It's all caps, okay? Churches are big business, <laughs> right? That's James. That's how I read it, right? Churches are big business that meddle in politics, tax them. Okay, okay. Let me let me say this. One, uh, ninety-five percent of churches are under five hundred people. Ninety-five percent. Okay, most churches are just in like backwoods Arkansas. It's just First Baptist Church of Madisonville. And it's just grandparents who are trying to, you know, get their, pay their bills and live their life and little kids who they're trying to teach about Jesus and Nomex wearing hardworking people. 95% of churches are under 300 to 500. Okay, they're not in it for the money. At Redemption, we're not in it for the money. Take a look around. I mean, you can tell, like, Look, you're here. We're not in it for the, for the money. And by the look of his profile picture, I think James doesn't have any money either. And so we're not really concerned about him. Ernie writes this. Okay, Ernie says, we need to build a wall around these people. Hashtag, make the future great again. Okay, let me just say that we haven't been to the future yet. How do we know it's so bad? Right? Apparently, Ernie has a time machine and a cool, sweet little goatee mustache, and they must have gone to the future and already seen what's going to happen, and he thinks we do need that wall. Make the future great again. Hey, Ernie, cool for you. Um, next is this. Lynn writes, um, evangelicals are America's ISIS. Wow. America's ISIS. Yeah, because it's so hard for us to figure out, okay, should we open another food pantry or should we fly airplanes into buildings? I don't know. It's really tough. 
because we're, we're the, okay, we're the new ISIS. But by the way, I don't know if you'll notice this or not, but um, she actually posted this on 9-11. So, you know, it just doesn't seem like she's very culturally sensitive either. And then lastly, my favorite is this. George says, ah, creepy people. I mean, how can you argue with that? Some of you are creepy. I mean, we love you, but you are creepy. George, he's, he's on to something. Yeah, creepy people, okay? How many of you are feeling the love right now? You feeling the love? Feeling the love? Yeah. We should be loving and welcoming, and we should support pluralism and tolerance and diversity as long as you agree with me. And if you don't agree with me, then you're wrong and I hate you. How many of you are feeling the love right now? I don't know about you, but I'm not, I'm not really feeling the love. And this is the way that it's been. This is the way that it has always been for a church that is on the fringes. This is the way that it was for Jesus' day. This is the way that it was for the church that Mark is writing to. And it's coming soon to a church near you. Because culture has always loved to criticize. Because they don't truly understand what it means to follow Jesus. They're nothing more than just the crowd. There's a second group that we'll see, and that's what we call the casual, casual followers. So here's what we see. Number two, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, so there's a big crowd coming out to see Jesus. They've heard everything that he's doing. So what are they going to do? They're going to come to him, right? If the first group is antagonistic, the second group is just apathetic, Okay, the second group, they just, I don't know, let's just go see what's going on. This great big crowd is following Jesus, and so they come. Why? It doesn't say. There is no answer. Mark doesn't give us a clue. It's not because they're believing Jesus, but for them, there's just nothing better for them to do. They come and they follow him, not because they believe in him, but for them, there's nothing better to do. And this is where I would say that most people fall into most people are half-hearted, casual Christians. Half-hearted, casual believers and following Jesus. You don't really believe in Him, but for you, you just don't have anything better to do. This is what I see so much. People are like, oh, maybe we should go to church, or maybe we should go to the beach. Maybe we should go to community group. Maybe we should go to Castle LA. Maybe we could read our Bible. Maybe we could watch Netflix. Half-hearted when it comes to following Jesus. For you, you raised in the church, you, you, you know all the Bible stories, you prayed the prayer, you raised your hand, you walked the aisle, you're going to heaven, but in the meantime, you're not going to really do anything else. Half-hearted, casual Christianity. It's not that you really believe in Jesus, but you have nothing to better, better to do. This is where most people, I believe, fall into. And this is the reason why many, many Young adults are just leaving the church because there's nothing there for them. Many young adults are just leaving the church. Okay, and there's a recent study by Barna that says upwards of 30% of young adults between the ages of 18 and 30 years old, they have walked away from the church and there's no signs that they're coming back. This 30%. These are kids who were raised going to Royal Rangers, you know, singing Father Abraham and Toby Mac and at youth group. They had pizza parties and we called it, we called it discipleship. And now today, 10 years later, they want nothing to do with Jesus, nothing to do with the church, and they've just walked away. I mean, this is my story. I mean, if I'm having to say, which one of these am I? This was me. Right? I was just a casual Christianity. I went to youth group. I grew up in the youth group. Right? I played all of the games. I drank Coke from a sock. I won a free TV because I brought 10 kids to a pizza party so big that the fire marshal got called out and we said, yay, we did it for Jesus. But the first time my faith was challenged, it fell apart. And listen, we can sit here and we can blame all of the millennials for all the problems that they're doing. Millennials are causing all the problems. They're the ones who are ruining our generation and they're ruining our nation. They're ruining our church. Or we can take responsibility because as the church, we were the ones who fed them pizza instead of feeding them the word of God. We can take responsibility of this because as the church, we were the ones who said, no, you're the dumb parents. We're the professionals. Drop your kids off. Don't worry about teaching anything. We'll handle it from here. And then we turned ministry into entertainment and we're wondering why there's an entire generation of biblically illiterate, half-hearted, casual Christians. It's our own fault. 
We made this problem. This is my story. I grew up in the church. I went to youth group every single week. But the first time my faith was challenged, I folded. As soon as I started having friends with people who had different beliefs than me, the first time I you know, started reading books from different backgrounds, the first time I met people who had other worldviews, the first time my faith was challenged, it fell apart. When I got a job, I didn't really need the church anymore. When I got new friends, I didn't really need the church anymore because I had something better to do than to actually believe in Jesus. See, I grew up in the church, but I never learned how to read my Bible. I grew up in the church, but I didn't learn how to worship. I didn't learn how to pray. I didn't learn how to serve. I didn't learn how to give. And I didn't learn how to live for something bigger than myself. I went to church, but I didn't know how to navigate through things like anxiety or depression or ask questions. I went to the church, but I didn't know how to share my faith. I didn't know how to defend my faith. And the first time my faith was challenged and rocked, it fell apart. And it wasn't very long before I was just another face in the crowd because my faith was casual. And listen to me, listen to me, redemption. If your faith is casual, it's not very long before it'll be optional. If your faith is casual, it's not going to be very long before for you, your faith, it becomes optional. And all you are is just another face in the crowd. The third group that we meet is not the casual, but it's the consumers. Okay, here's, here's what comes next. The story continues in verse 9. And he told the disciples to have a boat ready for him. So Peter, get the getaway boat. We got to go. He has a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. There's the, there's the word again, right? And so why? For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed in around him to touch him. Now, true or false, pop quiz, okay? At Redemption Church, we believe in healing. True. Yeah, some of you need to go to next steps. We believe in healing. Okay, at Redemption, we believe in that. And so, if you are sick, if you're injured or ill, we would love to pray for you, and we would love to see if Jesus will heal you. We believe in that. Uh, true or false? Okay, at Redemption, we believe in miracles. True. Yeah, we love to see miracles. We want to see a miracle, and if you're here today and you need a miracle, we would love to pray for you and believe that God will do a miracle in your life. We believe in those things. All of those things are good things. And here we see Jesus heals and Jesus does a miracle. So what is the problem? Well, the problem here is actually with the wording. So if you'll notice the wording here again, it says that Jesus healed many and they all pressed around to touch him. Okay, the wording is very important. The crowd here, they want to touch Jesus. The problem is, is they don't want Jesus to touch them. That they're reaching to touch Jesus, not because they love him, but because they want what he can give them. Some people are consumers when it comes to their faith. That they don't really follow Jesus, they just want Jesus' stuff. They just want Jesus to do something for them. They don't believe in him for who he is or what he has already accomplished in their life. This is what we call consumers. And many people have such a consumer mentality when it comes to the faith. I see this all the time in the church. Okay, oh, your life is bad? Well, why don't you come to Jesus and everything's going to be better? You know, just give us your money and everything's going to be fine. Right? I see this all the time. You know, people come into the church, oh, I'm sick, I'm hurting, I'm suffering. They're like, well, if you just have enough faith, if you just believe, if you just pray hard enough and give, you know, tithe, then, you know, God, he's going to bless you and it's all going to fall from heaven. You're never going to have a, another bad day in your life. And this is what people think when they go into the church. And they think, I just need to come here because Jesus can do, Jesus, I want this, I need this. Okay, this is what I want to do with me. And then the moment that anything bad happens, it all goes sideways, you're out. Many people have this consumer mentality when it comes to the church. And I see this, right? I see people, they come in at the first sign of anything bad, anything tragic happen. And they think, oh man, I need to go to church. I need to get, you know, very serious. I need to become devoted. I need to get, I need to get religious. And so they go to the Bible bookstore. They get them a nice little ESV journaling Bible. And then they find, you know, all the top 40 worship artists, they follow them on Spotify, they listen to the Air One, they come to church, they sit down real nice, and they're like, okay, here I am. 
okay, I'm going to get very serious. I'm going to be very devoted. I'm going to be very religious. And they come into the church, and guess what Jesus does? He still heals them. He does. Just like he heals the people in the crowd, Jesus, he still heals them because that's who Jesus is. That's the heart of Jesus. And I've seen this. I've seen people come in and, you know, I mean, they're, 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 you know, they need a, a miracle. And we pray for them. And God gives them a miracle. I've seen it where, where people have come in and they're sick and we lay hands on them and Jesus heals them. It's amazing. I've seen marriages hanging on by a thread. They come in and then Jesus, he brings the marriage together. He restores them. It's incredible. And Jesus, he still does it. And then eventually, the high wears off, reality sets in, and they go back to their old life, and they live their old ways. And they just become part of the crowd. And I'm like, hey, where did you go? Hey, what happened? Where, didn't Jesus heal you? Yeah, Jesus healed me. He gave me everything that I wanted. He gave me everything that I needed, and now I don't need him anymore. Thanks for the miracle, Jesus. I'll see you in six months. And they just become another part of the crowd. Listen, if you follow Jesus for what he can do, then you're always going to be disappointed. But if you follow Jesus for who he is and what he has already accomplished, then you will always be satisfied. We don't follow Jesus because of what he can do. We follow Jesus because of who he is and what he has already accomplished for us. That's the reason that we follow Jesus. Jesus is not a pinata. That you don't just hang him in the middle of the room, and if you just have enough faith, if you pray hard enough, take enough wax at God, then the blessings from heaven are going to fall in your life, and you're never going to have any problems, and everything's going to be perfect forever. That's not who he is. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. We don't follow Jesus for what he can do. We follow Jesus because of who he is, that Jesus is God. He's left heaven. He's entered into this world on a rescue mission to seek and to save the lost. That Jesus comes and lives the perfect life, the life without sin. That Jesus dies the painful death in your place, the death because of your sin. And that Jesus is buried in the grave. Three days later, he resurrects, conquering Satan, sin, hell, death, and the grave, giving you new life. In this life, you get Jesus. That's the reason that we follow him. That's the reason that we believe in him. That's the reason that we worship him. In this life, you get Jesus. Everything else is just a bonus. We believe in healing, and maybe Jesus will heal you, and maybe he doesn't. But that doesn't mean that everyone on this side of heaven is automatically going to be healed. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. But Jesus alone is still enough. We don't follow Jesus to make you rich. We don't follow Jesus to make you healthy, to make you wealthy. We don't follow him for all of these things. We follow Jesus because Jesus is enough. Jesus alone is everything that we need. And Jesus doesn't exist to bow his knee to you. Jesus doesn't exist to bend his will to yours. Jesus doesn't exist to serve you, but you exist to worship him, to praise him, to serve him. That's how all of this works. But in America, we have this consumer mentality that everything in our country exists for you. Everything is about your life, your wants, your needs, your desires, your preferences, your proclivities. It's all about you. What do you want? What do you need? When do you want it? How can I do it for you? And everything, it just, it just feeds into this narcissistic, consumer, self-autonomous individuality. And we call that being an American. And it overflows into the way that we view Jesus that we become consumers of everything religious. And we think, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to these. I'm going to listen to these people. You know, I'm going to listen to these pastors. I'm going to go to these churches. I'm going to listen to these worship artists. I'm going to be a part of these ministries. And they have a worship night on Tuesday. That's amazing. And we just consume. And we consume and we consume and we consume. And we become consumers of all things religious. And we treat our relationship with Jesus just like this. The common mentality in America is me. 
What can you do for me? How can you love me? How can you serve me? How can you be there for me? How can you better me? What about me? Me, 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 me. And it's all about you and it's not about Jesus. It's consumerism. I mean, could you just imagine what Mark's church would think about the way that we follow Jesus today? Could you just imagine if we, if we teleported someone from 8060 to 2018? I mean, what would they think if they walked through the doors of any church in our country? I mean, how would they say? I mean, they they would just be shocked, right? You're like, oh, you mean to tell me that you don't believe in God anymore because you didn't get a promotion? Really? They just fed my son to a lion. Oh, wait, you you really mean to tell me that that, that you think that, you know, you're not going to, you know, keep following Jesus, right? Because, well, you're on hard times financially. I eat out of the trash. But seriously, go ahead. Tell me, right? Oh, wait, you mean to tell me that you haven't been to church in five years because somebody didn't shake your hand at the door? My pastor just got set on fire. But go ahead and tell me one more time how they didn't play your favorite worship song. Really? Seriously? I mean, it was only just a couple of years after Mark wrote this book that he was dragged into the middle of the city and that he had um, his arms and his legs tied to horses and he ran them through different directions ripping his body into pieces, disemboweling him in public in front of everybody because of his belief in Jesus. But really, go ahead, tell me one more time how you can't find the perfect church to meet your needs. I mean, the first church, they would just be appalled. Like They would just laugh in our face about the way that we follow Jesus. And for us, we need to understand where they're coming from because for them, Jesus is enough. Jesus is all that they had. Jesus is all that they needed. Jesus was the only thing that they were guaranteed in their life. And for them, Jesus was enough. He's all that they needed. And listen, I love you. I care for you. I pray for you all of the time. I really do. And I know that there are people in our church who are sick. I know there are people in our church who have brain tumors, who have cancer, who have lupus and undiagnosed illness. I know there are people in our church who have mental illness and depression and bipolar disorder, and there are people who are suffering and have tremendous amounts of anxiety. I know that. And I pray for you every single day. And I believe, and I'm praying for your healing. I'm praying that Jesus will touch you and that Jesus will heal you There are people in our church who your marriage is hanging on by a thread. And I'm praying every day that he'll do a miracle in your marriage. There are people who are unemployed and underemployed. And I'm praying for you that you get the job. I'm praying for you that you can pay your bills. I want you to get that new car. I want you to get that promotion. I'm praying for you every single day. And I want those things for you. But what I want most in your life is that you would follow Jesus at all costs. Because Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough enough. And if you worship him for who he is, you will always be satisfied. But if you come to faith with a consumer mentality, I give you six months before you're just another part of the crowd. Mark is pretty tough, right? It's about to get a little tougher because the next section is the condemned got real quiet. Verse 4, or verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits, that's a demon, saw him, they fell down before him, and they cried out, you are the son of God, and he strictly ordered them not to make him No. Now, briefly, before we get into the condemned, I need to say this. Some of you right now are feeling what is called conviction. Amen? So we've been a little convicted. You're reading this, and you're like, that's totally me, right? I am the culture. I don't follow Jesus. I follow trends. You're like, no, you know what? I'm more casual, right? I don't really believe in God. It just really depends on where I'm at in my life. I'm more consumer. Some of you say, I'm a consumer, right? I just want what Jesus can do for me. I don't really want you know, what he's already accomplished for me. And as we're reading this, we're seeing, yeah, there's different types of followers that best represent my life. And some of us right now, we're feeling a little condemned. I'm not condemned, convicted. Okay, and let me say this. Conviction is a good thing. It's good that you're feeling convicted because conviction means that this is working. 
Conviction means that the Spirit of God is taking the Word of God and it's at work in your life so you can live a life for God. Conviction is a good thing. Conviction means that there is growth. Conviction means that there is hope. Conviction is not to be confused with condemnation, though. Right? Because conviction means there's hope. Condemnation means there is no hope. Conviction means that the Spirit is at work. Condemnation means you're resisting the Spirit and it's not at work in your life. There's a difference between conviction and condemnation. And we need to talk about this and it's really uncomfortable for pastors to talk about it. So a lot of pastors, they just kind of skip over it. They don't mention it, but it is something that we, we do need to talk about. That Satan and demons are real. Here it says unclean spirits. Okay, that's demons. Satan and demons and hell, they are very real. It's not just your imagination. It's not just a mental illness. It's not something that a Hollywood producer came up with to scare you for your date night. Satan and demons are very real and hell is very real and they are at work blinding people to the truth of who Jesus is in this world. That's the truth. And here what I noticed that is so interesting is that out of the entire crowd, the only people who know who Jesus is are the demons. Did you notice that? Like when we read through the Mark's gospel, no one knows who Jesus is. Everybody's like, I don't know who this guy is. Right? Just kind of showed up preaching, teaching. I mean, maybe he's a healer. Maybe he's a miracle worker. Maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he's a politician. I don't even know who this guy is. The only group of people in Mark's gospel who know who Jesus is are the demons. And they come to him and they bow before him and they profess that you are the son of God. And Jesus doesn't accept their profession of faith. And he orders them to remain silent. Now here's where this is going to hurt. Satan is real. Demons are real. Hell is real. God made hell for evil, for Satan and demons. But there's room for you too. People will be condemned. People will live their life separated from God in conscious eternal torment in hell where the moth never dies and the flame never ends. That is the truth. And truth doesn't matter on what you believe. Truth only matters on what is true. Satan is real. Demons are real. Hell is real. And some people, many people, will join the ranks of the demons and they will be condemned. Not everyone is going to go to heaven. But everyone one day will stand before Jesus on judgment day and have to give an account for your life, for your thoughts, for your words, for your deeds, for your actions, and for your decisions. And on that day, everyone will bow their knee. And some of you will bow your knee right next to a demon and spend eternity in exactly the same place. It is very real. And if you don't make a decision today, it's going to be too late. And Jesus will not accept your profession of faith because he gave you your entire lifetime to make that decision. Some people will be condemned. And right about now, some people are also feeling convicted. Right now, some of you are thinking, wait, I have to stand before God and give an account for my life. For my thoughts, for my words, for my decisions, for how I lived and who I worshipped, I have to give an account. What am I going to do? What am I going to say on that great day, on judgment day? What am I going to say? If you're feeling that, if you're thinking that, you're being convicted. Remember, that's a good thing. Because for you who are convicted on judgment day, when you stand before God and you give that account... Jesus will be standing right next to you and you'll say, I got that. But if you hear what I'm saying and you're not convicted, then Jesus will not accept the profession on that day because you're condemned. If you're not being convicted, if you're listening to me right now and you're thinking, what does that pastor know? Right, That pastor is just trying to scare me talking about hell. I don't believe in hell. And even if hell was real, well, I'm a good person. Then Jesus must let me in because I've lived a good life. I've done some good deeds. This pastor is trying to scare me, right? I'm never coming back to this church again. I'm out. If that's you, you're in trouble. 
because your heart is hard, your ears are closed, your eyes are blinded, and your soul is in danger. See, Jesus is very, very patient with us in this life. He's giving us every opportunity to repent. And today is that day for you. Because if you wait, it's going to be too late. And you're just going to be another face in the crowd who is also condemned. And you have a decision to make. You can either live your life as one of the condemned, or you can answer the call that Jesus has for you. Because Jesus is calling. And that's the fifth group. The fifth group we see is the called. Here's how it goes. Verse 13, And he went up to the mountain, and he called to those whom he desired, and they came to him. I, I love when I read this. It says, He called to him those whom he desired, that Jesus desires to call you to himself. He called, then they came to him, and he appointed the twelve, whom he also named the apostles, so that they might be with him. In this text, we see a whole bunch of people from a whole different places and backgrounds and upbringings and beliefs. We see people from everywhere. We see people who are from the culture, that they come to Jesus because they have a false understanding of what it means to follow him. We see that there's people who come and they follow him because they're just casual. They don't believe in him. They got nothing better to do. Some are consumers and some are condemned. And what I find so amazing about this section of scripture is this, that out of the crowd, Jesus still calls them. That out of the crowd, Jesus still sees them, that he desires them, that he calls them so that they can be with him. The big idea is this, Jesus is calling you out of that crowd. He wants to be with you. He desires to be with you. And Jesus, he is calling you. A few years later, another man comes along and he writes another book of the Bible. His name is Paul. And he's an apostle, he's a church planter, and he writes another book of the Bible called Romans. And this book is written to the exact same church that Mark is writing to. A church that is marginalized and on the fringes, a church that is fearful and afraid because it's like they're being crushed. And Mark and Paul, they pick up on this same theme. And as Paul is writing to the church at Rome, this is his introduction to his letter. And here's what he says. You, it's you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you were called to belong to Jesus, to belong to him, not just to be with him, but also to belong to him. That Jesus has ransomed you. That Jesus has rescued you. That Jesus has chosen you. That Jesus has called you to be with him. You've been called to belong to Jesus Christ. And to those who are in Rome, to those who are afraid, to those who are fearful, to those who are being crushed, to those who are being persecuted, to those who are being marginalized and ostracized, to those who don't know the way forward, who don't, those don't know what's going to happen next, to the church in Rome, you are loved by God. Maybe they don't love you, but God, He loves you. You are loved by God, and you are called to be saints. Today we stand in a long line of Christians, 2,000 years in the making, who have held fast on the, on the confession that Jesus is Lord and that they've given their life to Him and they followed Him at all costs. And 2,000 years later, despite Rome, despite emperors, despite many Neros that have gone before us, despite culture, despite trends, the church of Jesus Christ is still standing. The church of Jesus Christ is still remaining. The church of Jesus Christ is still steadfast because of men and women like you who have been called to be saints set apart, holy, unlike, unstained by the world. Saints. He continues. Grace. That's unmerited favor that comes only from God. It's not based on you or what you did or who your family was or where you were raised, 
or what church you went to. It's grace that only comes as faith from Jesus. And then he says this word right here, peace. That's courage. That's confidence. That's conviction in your life. That you would have peace. Can you see the first century Christians reading this? That we would have peace in the midst of this world where everything's crazy and everything's chaos. We have been called. We have grace. We have peace that comes from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is calling you out of the crowd to be his church. I still remember when Jesus called me. I was 20 years old. I'd spent my whole life running from God. And I walked in the doors to her church. And I didn't want to be there. I didn't really even think much about it. I was invited by a cute girl, and I said I'd go. Hopefully she wouldn't ask me again. And I walked in those doors that day. And I don't remember anything about the service. I don't remember the message. I don't remember the sermon. Just like some of you probably won't remember this sermon either. And I don't remember the worship set. I don't remember if the coffee was any good. I don't even know if somebody shook my hand at the door. The only thing that I remember is as I was sitting in that chair, Jesus called me. And the love and the grace and the peace of God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ filled my heart and flooded my soul. And that day, everything changed. I walked in the doors, a part of the crowd. I walked out those doors that day feeling the believing and the call that Jesus has. And Jesus changed everything. Jesus changed everything. Jesus changed my life. Jesus changed my identity. Jesus changed my destiny. Jesus changed my eternity. Jesus changed everything. And on that day, 13 years ago, Jesus called me out of the crowd to be with and to belong to him. And I asked you at the very beginning of the sermon, which one best represents your life? What type of follower are you? Are you the crowd or are you the called? What type of follower are you? And some of you, you need to be honest today and you just got to admit, you're like, you know what? I'm, I'm culture. That I follow trends, I don't follow Jesus. I get my worldview from Twitter and whatever they say is trending, that's what I believe. And you have to admit, you're like, I'm the culture. My, my point of view, my news, my reference, everything I believe comes from Huffington Post and what someone else already told me. My views of life and following Jesus really just come from the culture. I'm culture. And if that's you, here's the good news. Jesus sees that and he's still calling you to be with him because you were called to belong to him. You don't belong in the crowd. You belong to Christ Jesus. And some of you, you have to admit, you say, you know what? This is me. This is my life. Right? I'm, I'm just a casual Christian. Okay, I don't really believe in Him. I just have nothing better to do. I was raised in the church. I was baptized, prayed a prayer. But that's all I've done. And you have to admit, I'm a casual Christian. I consume. I don't contribute. I take. I don't give. I don't participate. It's all about me. And the good news is this. Jesus sees that. And He still wants to be with you. That He desires to call you to Himself. He has something bigger planned for your life than being just a part of the crowd. Some of you, you read this and you have to think, you know what, I'm, I'm a consumer. Right? I, I just want whatever it is, I just take it. I'm a consumer when it comes to my faith and religion. I don't really follow Jesus. I just want His stuff. And some of you, you have to admit that. And the good news is this. Jesus still can heal you. Jesus still can do a miracle in your life. And the kindness of Jesus is designed to lead to your repentance and He's still calling you because you belong with Him to be with Him. And some of you are among the condemned. That you hear this and you live your whole life resisting Him, rejecting Him, wanting nothing to do with Him. Listen to me. Life is short. Hell is hot. And forever is a long time. Don't wait because one day it will be too late. And Jesus is still calling you and you have a decision to answer this great invitation to bend your knee today 
and submit your life through repentance and faith that Jesus Christ is God and answer the call and come out of the crowd. And then some of you, you are the called. But many of you, you feel the temptation of the first church. Some of you are at that point to where you want to give up. Don't give up. Some of you are at that part to where you want to give in. Don't give in. Take the grace. Take the peace. Remember, out of the crowd, you have been called. We live in probably the most exciting time to follow Jesus in the last 2,000 years. We need to identify with our first century brothers and sisters that out of the crowd, we have been called. The church of Jesus Christ, it flourishes when we're being crushed. That's when the church flourishes. The church grows, not in America, but in Rome. That's when the church grows because Nero's have come and gone. Caesar's have come and gone. Rome has come and gone. But the church of Jesus Christ, 2,000 years later, is still standing, still persevering, steadfast, loving, gracious, strong, because for us, as the called, Jesus is enough. And in him, We have everything that we need. But you have a decision. Who are you? Are you the culture? Are you a casual Christian? Are you a consumer? Are you condemned? Or are you called? Today is your invitation to follow Jesus. Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at the gig. If you would like to know more, You can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us for one of our two services at 9.30 or 11.15 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are welcome too. We are Redemption and we would love to meet you.